Good morning. Uh, so this morning we're continuing our discussion, our reflection, our prayer, our conversation with each other around money. Uh, God's vision, his prophetic uh, call to use our imaginations and our creativity around our resources uh, is real, is with us. We hear it woven throughout scripture, and yet we still find ourselves uh, participating, entrenched, involved in the human economy. Day to day, we make conscious choices or habitual choices, choices around how we use, save, give our resources. And it's easy to think if we could just sell it all, uh, it would be a lot more uh, um, aligned with God's vision. And yet we all know how difficult that can be. Throughout the Sunday school elective that we've been having, uh, Chuck and I invited a few people to share uh, throughout this series. And uh, Chuck and I were surprised and encouraged uh, at the level of response that we got uh, from folks who wanted to share a little reflection or prayer or uh, meditation around the themes that we've been talking about. And what we liked about that was that this creates a textured conversation. It creates a, a vehicle for us all to find a way into it when we hear multiple voices. Uh, it was really special to me attending this church early on and hearing uh, a multi-voice sermon, which was even a new concept to me, to hear multiple voices from the congregation share around uh, a theme for that particular Sunday. And so for the next two Sundays, what we're going to do are, is for, the, for our, our time together is have these mini money talks, talks about how we use our money, while we recognize the creative tension and striving for balance that we work toward in living in God's economy and being participants in this human economy. So this morning, uh, Patrick Waybright, Margaret High, and Dirk Eitzen will, will share with us. And my invitation to you is to think of how do you come to this conversation and be listening to how is Jesus inviting you or your household or your community, or our community, to respond with the use and storage uh, and deployment of our resources. When I was a kid, my dad loved to go to County Line. This was a grocery store in Middlebury, Indiana, near Goshen, where I grew up, that was run by plain people. It had corrugated metal roofing, metal sides, no frills. This was not exactly Stauffer's of Kissel Hill, or the new Whole Foods that's going in, I guess. Inside, there were rows and rows of boxes and jars with little black and white labels. There were things like uh, grape drink mix and toasted O's and some nameless peanut-like substance. This was not peanut butter, trust me, because I tasted it. It was not good. This was what we called generic. Well, I recently asked my dad why he shopped there. He first answered something about wanting to support the Amish, but when I expressed doubt, he said, well, and the stuff was really cheap. <laughs> he looked both proud of himself and mystified by my question. Wasn't it obvious? This was simple living. 
One of the topics that the conscious capitalism uh, class caused me to think a good bit about is that of economic externalities. Now, economics, as we all know, is the study of how people make choices with competing interests and limited resources. And capitalism is the economic system, more or less, in which we operate. And it enables a roughly democratic determination of what gets produced and consumed, ideally, a system where nearly everyone gets some vote. Now, to be sure, there's no pure capitalist system in the U.S. or anywhere else, and clearly not everyone gets the same amount of votes. But capitalism's strength lies in its potential to afford breadth and diversity into the economic decision-making process. So we have power if we choose to use it. An eternal dilemma for capitalism, however, is that of economic externalities. So externalities are consequences affecting unrelated third parties from the production of some good or service. So the most obvious example of a negative externality would be pollution, which we'd be familiar with. So a factory makes a product, has the cost of materials, electricity, wages, and then it calculates these, adds in some profit, and then comes up with the price tag that you see in the store. However, there might have been pollutants that come from the factory. Perhaps it released particulate matter that increases the incidence of lung cancer, or it may diminish the water quality in a nearby river, decreasing the fish population and having a negative impact on the fishing industry. So what was the cost incurred for the treatment of that lung cancer or the loss in the volume of fish caught? These were real dollar amounts that were lost and spent by somebody. Did the price tag and the factory product reflect these costs? No. These are negative externalities, and I think that understanding them might be important in how we in the church think about simple living. The only factor with which we are forced to reckon at the time of a purchasing decision is the price, that number printed on the product. And it's the only measure really available to us to determine what we have to give up to get the product. But price is not the same thing as cost. In fact, it's often a very far cry from the true cost. And in that gap between the cost and the price lies the externality. It's worth noting that Jesus asked us to count well the cost. As far as I know, he never said anything about the price. (laughs) So, do we as Mennonites have anything to say about externalities? Absolutely. At East Chestnut Street, I think the creation care uh, work that's done here is a direct attempt to address externalities that affect our creation. Chestnut Housing Corporation, Monday Night Meals, uh, could be thought of as, as attempts to help pay for some of the negative effects of externalities. And many of our Mennonite institutions, MCC, Mennonite Disaster Work, I mean, essentially these are organizations which pick up the tab on various externalities. But today, economic externalities are enormous, and they're insidious, and there's plenty more for us to do. There was a time when pollution was fairly minimal. Communities and markets were local, and negative externalities from certain economic decisions were really in your face. The lost job was your neighbor's. Products were produced locally, and the effects of poor working conditions would fall on you or people you knew. While not everyone owned slaves, everybody knew about them, and they were a horrific human externality there for all to see. And some did respond by refusing to buy sugar or indigo cotton that had as their cost the externality of human enslavement. But today our externalities are subtle. They're geographically and visually removed. Enslavement still exists in some faraway sweatshop, but most will never see it. And the pollution has spread far and wide by jet airplanes at 35,000 feet and radioactive clouds that cover our globe. In the production of meat, antibiotic use, and cramped living conditions for livestock are externalities. But they're hidden from our view in confinement units. 
I recently came across this, this piece of uh, data listening to uh, a lecture on, on energy. And uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting has estimated that the true cost, not the price, the true cost of a gallon of gasoline is 5 to $15 above the price tag. That is one heck of a negative externality. The problem is that our complicity in creating these externalities is plausibly deniable. The Internet notwithstanding, it's very easy for us to pretend that these externalities don't exist, or they're just the fault of large corporations or whoever the current president might be, not our own individual economic decisions. So what do we do? Well, we might raise the concern. Well, not everyone can afford to eat organic local food. Not everyone can afford to buy fair trade clothing. And some people can't give up driving their car to get to work. True enough. And it's always worth considering those whose economic means place them at the edge. But just for today, I'd ask us to put this aside and instead ask, what can I afford to do? Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. So rather than an ethic of, if not all can afford it, then none should do it, Jesus seems to suggest that different things are required of different individuals, depending upon their means. So rather than ask, well, what about those who can't do this? The more appropriate question might be, what is required of me? So back to my dad. Why did he really buy those generic things? Well, buying things cheap seems to be in our DNA. It's kind of a distinguishing cultural characteristic of Anabaptists. And getting a really good deal is kind of a Mennonite badge of honor. But could it be a stumbling block? My dad and mom could easily be afforded more expensive food. The difference in price between those toasted O's and organic, local, fair trade, B Corp certified cereal, or even just a bowl of oatmeal, was not really what enabled them to pay the mortgage. So why did they do it? Well, I think it has something to do with our concept of simple living. Our traditional concepts of simple living just preclude us from buying the thing with the higher price tag. We argue something like this. I buy stuff for really cheap, I save the money, and then I donate it to MCC, or Habitat for Humanity, or my church. That's simple living. Well, this is admirable, and if it actually occurs all the time, it's a very generous thing indeed. But it might fall short of our goal. Live simply that others may simply live. If the cost of that low-price item is the compromise of someone's health, economic livelihood, or a destroyed environment, and if the money we then save and give to the charity of our choice is then spent to alleviate this suffering, aren't we just chasing our tails? Wouldn't it be more efficient to simply consider the total cost at the onset? Our church has a rich tradition of caring for the marginalized, those who bear the brunt of our economic externalities. I think that a fresh thinking about simple living, one that includes a complete accounting of all costs, will more accurately allow us to live simply so that others may simply live. And I hope that we can continue these conversations and together explore ways to reinvent Anabaptist simple living. I'm going to tell some stories about how I teach our kids about money. David and I have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 2-year-old. My big kids agreed that I could tell their stories as long as I protected their privacy, so I will call them both my daughters in this little talk. 
And furthermore, Genevieve made me promise that I would not let anybody wiggle the secret out of me. So don't even try. (laughs) One time when I was panhandled and responded, no, sorry, my daughter asked why I said no. So I told her I like to give money to places I trust, to use the money in the most helpful way. About that time, there was a newspaper article about Ron Swaggart, whose barbershop is up here on the corner of Sherman and East Orange. He's 81, but he keeps cutting hair because he needs the income. Typically, I cut my kids' hair at home to save money, but the next time a daughter needed a haircut, I took her to Mr. Swaggart's barbershop. I explained to my daughter that this was an exchange of money for services, a way to help a man keep his dignity and build community. This is what I prefer to do instead of giving money to panhandlers. In the same vein, I convinced my extended family to order food for a party from the Almahaznes instead of the original plan, which was Costco pizza. We do not give our kids allowances because I think it's unrealistic to receive wages for existing Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) They must do regular household chores because they eat food, wear clothes, and make dirt in our house, and our maid always seems to have the day off. However, I will pay them for extra jobs whenever they ask. One time, one daughter had just earned $4 being a mother's helper for two hours, and she immediately wanted to buy a junky toy at Rite Aid for $4. So I asked her, is that cheap toy worth two hours of your time? And she stopped cold. No. I want to raise my children with the ability to delay their gratification. One daughter started begging for a gerbil six months before her birthday. David and I asked her to convince us with research that a gerbil was a reasonable pet. She made a list of pros and cons from internet and library book research. She convinced us. Then we told her that she could buy the gerbil outright with her savings, or she could wait the remaining four months until her birthday, and we would buy the gerbil for her. She chose to wait. I was so impressed. Another time, however, my daughter heard the ice cream truck and frantically borrowed money from her sister to run down the street and eat an ice cream cone. Then, she was reluctant to pay her sister back because she didn't have any money. I gave her a deadline for earning the cash to pay her sister back because I had seen this cycle before in this daughter. (laughs) I talked to her seriously about the cycle of debt and borrowing that many Americans are lured into because they cannot live within their means. I explained to her how, when I was 18, Grandpa Jim got me a credit card and held it up in front of my face and said, I will cut this card up if you don't pay the whole bill every month. And that set a pattern for me that I still follow. Recently, my daughter came tearing into the house, begging me to loan my squirt bottle to her. I said, okay, as long as it comes right back to the shelf as soon as you're done with it. The next day, I saw the broken squirt bottle in the yard. So I told my daughter that she would need to pay to replace it. One of the mantras in our family is, we try not to break things, which sounds ridiculous, but (laughs) let me explain. 
My kids used to say, oh, grandma will get me another one, or oh, it was so cheap, I'll buy another one. I have, I have the money, or whatever. They seemed to have the general idea that more stuff was always coming to them with no trouble to them. So I want to teach them to take care of things, even the cheap things, or else buy quality things that are worth their time and care. I love the 1930s chant that was also said in World War II, use it up, wear it out, make do or do without. I don't want my kids to expect a treat from every store I go to or an ice cream every time they hear the ice cream truck. I don't want my kids to be careless with their toys because they have so many. I don't want my kids to feel that it's their right to get gifts and cash and candy every holiday. A wise friend once told me that entitlement is the biggest problem for American children today. I know a man who was raised by parents who literally said yes every time he asked for money. Now he is married with children and a good income. But he spends his money as soon as he has it on things his family doesn't need, and their house is piling up with excess. So I think about him every time I feel like I'm saying no, 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 no to my children. I really hope I'm getting to the middle ground on that issue. There's so much more to say, but that's my five minutes. I hope this conversation can go beyond my sharing up here. I really want to hear your stories, what you're doing, what you've done, how you were raised around money, because I I depend on my community to help me learn and grow. The Amish have a custom, as I'm sure most of you know, that when somebody does something that the community regards as a sin, he has to stand up in front of the congregation and confess. Um, now, seen cynically, that's just a, a mean kind of social control, using the threat of public humiliation to keep people in line. Uh, but seen positively or sympathetically, it does have value uh, for the individual to say, boy, did I mess up, can be healing as well as humbling. And for the community, if people are willing to say, I made a mistake, then other people can learn from that. So in that spirit, I'm going to confess this morning something I did with money several years ago that was, um, well, uh, it was greedy, arrogant, and stupid. This is really embarrassing. It's so embarrassing that I've only ever told two people, Myrna and Emma, now, I told Emma because she was interviewing me for this high school finance class. And a year, a year later or so, I bumped into her teacher. He said, boy, that's some story Emma told about you. So, so three, three, three people know this story now. Um, and maybe Emma's entire high school finance class. Uh, so this morning, I'm going to share it with you and hope that you learned something from it. And since I know I have your attention now, I want to tell you something else first, something I read a few a month or two ago about fairness that I think is, is really useful and interesting. Um, many of you know that I'm a tenured uh, professor, college professor. That means I have a job guaranteed for as long as I want it. Um, it's a job that 
Well, requires, I don't have to punch a time clock. There's no heavy lifting. Um, I get summers off to do pretty much with as I please. Um, so I ask you, is that fair? Here's the American answer. Of course it's fair. I earned it. I spent years in graduate school. I worked my butt off to get tenure. Uh, I'm really dedicated to my teaching. So I deserve my guaranteed job with its, uh, my cushy job with its guarantee of lifetime employment. That's the American answer. But the truth is, deserves got nothing to do with it. Now that's a line from one of my favorite movies, the Clint Eastwood Western, Unforgiven. Gene Hackman plays a vicious town sheriff who keeps the peace by brutalizing or killing anybody who doesn't follow his rule. As an object lesson, he beats a man to death and props him up in a coffin outside the town bar. Near the end of the movie, the dead man's friend, played by Eastwood, busts into the bar and after a showdown, knocks the evil sheriff to the floor and stands over him pointing a shotgun at his head. Uh, Gene Hackman says... I don't deserve to die like this. And Eastwood drawls, deserves, got nothing to do with it. Then he pulls the trigger. Now, I really am a pacifist. (laughs) I abhor violence. Uh, But I see the violence in Unforgiven as akin to the violence in the Old Testament, something to think about and learn from. But that's a different story. Uh, My point here is about deserving. Just because I worked hard for my tenured job doesn't mean that I deserve it. There are plenty of scholars who have worked just as hard who are unemployed or underemployed. Furthermore, you know, I don't really even need to have earned my money to feel that I deserve it. I might have inherited it or made a lucky investment in the stock market. Once I own it, it's mine to do with as I please. That's the American way. There are two big problems with this way of thinking. The first is its negative side. If I deserve what I have, then you deserve what you have. And if you happen to be a single mom struggling to make ends meet by working two minimum wage jobs, hey, that's on you. If you wanted a job like mine, you should have earned a PhD. Now, that's absurd, of course. There's a tremendous amount of luck involved in who we are and who we become. I was lucky enough to be born to white parents in the U.S. who valued education and could afford to subsidize my higher education. But if we happen to have money and privilege, then of course we're justified to our good, justified to our good fortune. Of course we think we're entitled to it. That's human nature. And that's the second problem with this way of thinking. We come to regard our good fortune as only fair. Forty-odd years ago, an American moral philosopher, John Rawls, proposed a different way of thinking about fairness with this thought experiment. Imagine if you were to be reincarnated tomorrow in somebody else's body, anywhere in America, whose body would be totally random. You might be a billionaire like Donald Trump, but chances are much, much higher that you'd be a factory worker, an immigrant, a drug addict, a single mom working two jobs, a system that's truly just, Rawls said, is, would be one in which whatever body you wound up with, you would have the same opportunity to achieve your potential and live a good life. 
That's obviously a far cry from the system we have. The playing field of life isn't level. We're all observed. Some people are born into gated communities, others into slums. If we are truly interested in justice, Rawls said, we need to put away the presumption, the good old American presumption, that life is fair and people deserve what is given them. Children do not deserve to grow up in households with single parents. Factory workers do not deserve to to lose their jobs to automation. They just do. I don't deserve to be a college professor. Deserve's got nothing to do with it. Bang. That's the insight on fairness I wanted to share. And now, my embarrassing confession. When my dad died eight years ago, he left me an inheritance of $60,000. This was the first time that I'd ever had money that I needed to figure out what to do with. My retirement account funds have always gone straight into the teacher's retirement fund, TIAA, and I've never really paid any attention to it. My brother, who's always obsessively managed his own retirement fund, told me that when it came to to, to investing, I was the dumbest person he knew. (laughs) I didn't even know what an indexed fund is. Now, if you don't happen to know what an indexed fund is, I don't think that makes you dumb. It might even make you lucky. But I'm going to tell you. Uh, An indexed fund is like a big basket of stocks and lots of different companies that you can buy a small piece of. This balances out fluctuations in the price of individual stocks so that when the stock market rises a little bit every year, as it tends to do, you get a little bit of increase on your investment. Well, the idea of a little bit of increase didn't interest me much. I wanted more. I did some reading and discovered that when professional investors handpick stocks, they very rarely do better than indexed funds over the long term. They usually do much worse. Still, I thought I can do better, and I proceeded to try. To make a long story short, I bought a handful of stocks in companies that I thought were bound to balloon. For a time, the stocks did really well, sometimes gaining hundreds of dollars a day, and then they didn't. I kept switching to other stocks, and in under three years, I lost nearly a third of the inheritance. So there you have it. Greed, stupidity, and arrogance. That's the embarrassing part of the story, but it's not the important part. The important part is what became of me in the course of those several years. First, I monitored the investments daily. It was fun and exhilarating, kind of like a game. Then I started checking my investments several times during the day. I spent more and more hours researching and obsessing about what stocks to buy and sell. I installed an app on my iPhone that would buzz for my attention every time one of my stocks would jump up or down significantly. And when it jumped down, I would sometimes feel anxious and miserable for hours or even days. My preoccupation with investments became something like an addiction. It was taking a toll on me mentally, physically, spiritually. So I quit. I sold what was left of the inheritance put it into an index fund, and stopped paying attention to it. Losing that money was painful. But the really important lesson I learned is that in those years when I was preoccupied with my financial investments, I lost a piece of my soul. Paul wrote to Timothy in that letter you heard part of this morning, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from from the faith, 
and pierced themselves with many pains. That's what happened to me. That's my confession. I hope it helps. And I pray that you'll remember when you count your financial blessings or worry about your financial hardships, deserves got nothing to do with it. <laughs>